Thank you so much for being here with us. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, amen. We get excited about the Word of God. And 1 Peter is where we're going to be tonight. Next week is our worship night to close out the semester. I want to encourage you, man, if you can, be here next week as we worship. Uh, Jeff and Alan are going to be leading us. We're so excited for next week. Bring somebody with you. It's our last one until June. So next week, man, we'd love to have you. But tonight, I've got one more word for you. Um, And if you're taking notes, I hope that you are. At the top of your notes, you can write this. This is the title of our message tonight. The title is How to Leave a Legacy. How to Leave a Legacy. So we've done three weeks, all how-tos. If you remember, the first one was how to leave it all behind. We looked at Peter in the boat with Jesus when the miracle happens, and he leaves everything he has to follow Jesus, him and the disciples do in that moment. So we talked about forsaking the world and following after Jesus and what that really means in the life of a college student, a college-age student in 2022. And then last week, we talked about the storms of life. We talked about how to walk on water, how to not sink, how to have a faith that rises above how to literally be pulled up by Jesus in whatever storm or battle or hardship that you may be going through. And Peter, we see the moment where he, of course, you'll remember, he was walking on water last week, and then he looked at the storm, he looked at the wind, got fearful, and began to sink, which is a great application for all of us. When we take our eyes off of Jesus, we begin to sink. Well, tonight we're going to look at one of the letters of Peter and one of the exhortations he's going to give in light of Jesus coming back. And I'm very excited about that. And so, Tonight, as we talk through this concept, I want you to think about the impact that you are making in your life. Everywhere we go, we make an impact. The question is not, are we making an impact? The question is, what kind of impact? Unless you live under a rock and never leave. You're making an impact on people. You're making an impact on your job. You're making an impact on your classmates. You're making an impact on your friends. You're making an impact on your family. You're making an impact on the world. Every single one of us are. Question is not if, question is what kind of impact are we really making? That's the question to be asked. Is it an eternal impact? Because it's very easy to make an earthly impact, right? You can go out, you can buy somebody a pair of shoes, it's real nice, it's cool, and, and that can be done to the glory of God. But ultimately, are we doing things for eternal impact, the impact of heaven? Now, I'll never forget, I've been walking through a little bit of my testimony throughout this series, and I'm going to share a little bit more with you tonight. And 2016, when I stepped into The View for the first time as a guest, I was not allowed to sit alone. (laughs) I walked into The View, and the leaders at the time made sure that I had somebody to sit with. And it was very encouraging for me to hear Devon and Ethan say the same thing last week. The man, when people come into The View, they came up, they talked to them, made sure they had somebody to sit with. It's encouraging. That's how it was for me. And I had gotten saved a week before coming to The View, so all of this was very new for me. I didn't know Christian culture, like I said last week. I didn't know the Christian world. And so when I came into The View, Andrew Bryant was one of the leaders at the time, who was one of our life group teachers on Wednesday night. And if you know Andrew, you'll appreciate this story very much. Andrew is faithful. He's humble. And uh, he came up to me that night uh, when I came for the first time as a worship night. And he said, hey, man. And he he heard a little bit about who I was and asked me some questions and stuff. And he was like, man, you want to go get Ching's Wings? And I was taken back. I was like, man, this dude's inviting a stranger to lunch. (laughs) I was like, this dude has no idea who I am. He wants to go get some wings with me. 
And so, man, I thought about it. Like, I was a little nervous to go sit down with Christian still because I knew, like, I couldn't really fake it. Like, he was going to pick up pretty quickly. That I was very raw. I was trying to quit cussing. I was trying to quit living worldly. But I was like, man, I'll go to lunch with him. And so I went to lunch with him and another guy who ended up discipling me. And I thought about canceling last minute. But, man, the Lord convicted me. He didn't let me cancel, and I'm glad he didn't. We went to lunch. We went to Ching's. We sat down. We had a great conversation. Talked about his engineering. Talked a little bit about my coaching. Had some conversation there, and it was really good. And uh, I wrote this out because I wanted to remember this. And uh, I got ready to leave. You know, I was like, all right, well, we're about done. It's about end of the lunch, Skylar. You know, we're about to get out of here. And uh, I'm, I'm about to stand up. And he looks at me. And this is what he asked me in the moment. And uh, it's a simple question that you probably get asked all the time. I had never been asked it. He looks at me. He goes, man, I know you got saved recently. And so what he asked, how's your relationship with Christ going? Now, I need you to understand, to you, that's probably normal. To me, I was shook because I had not had anybody ask me a question about me and God in seven years. Seven years. My mom, of course, I'm going to talk about her. She prayed for me all the time growing up, my dad too. But for seven years, nobody had ever asked me about my relationship with the Lord, if I had one, what I thought of Jesus. I just wasn't in those environments. It didn't come up. So when he asked me this, I was very shook. And I really didn't know how to answer. I kind of fumbled some stuff together and made it sound cohesive. But I really didn't know what to say, to be honest with you. I had a conversation with him. He explained discipleship, like Abigail was talking about a moment ago. He explained what discipleship was. He, he said, hey, man, I want you to come with me next Saturday. We're going to go share the gospel. I'm going to show you how. I was like, man, I'm trying to understand the gospel for myself. I was like, you want me to go tell somebody else? And so he picks me up. We go to the Wolf Chase Mall, which is you know, kind of intimidating in and of itself to go share the gospel with him. So I'm like, Andrew, listen, pick somebody that's not so intimidating, you know, somebody that's easy. So Andrew picks out the 40-year-old Persian man that's selling iPhone cases in the food court. And we sit down, and we have a debate. I mean, Andrew's going back and forth. He's sharing truth. I mean, he's sharing scripture. He's going back and forth. And I'm just sitting there like, this what sharing the gospel is? You know, I was like, "Woo! I don't know, Andrew. This might be for you, man. I don't know if this is for me. But I watched, and I took notes, like mental notes. And I was like, I wasn't like sitting there writing like this, you know. Go back, Andrew, two more sentences. What was that? You know, I'm taking these mental notes. I'm like learning. I'm, I'm taking this in. And uh, we leave, man, and Andrew tells me, he's like, dude, listen, if you keep memorizing scripture, if you keep chasing after the Lord, if you get discipled, you're going to grow. And, man, I'll never forget this because Ching's Wings, a simple lunch, had such eternal impact on my life. That lunch changed my whole view of discipleship. And I boiled it down. I was talking about my sermon with Dakota earlier. This is what it was. It was Ching's Wings, a friendship. Yeah, amen, hallelujah. A friendship. Intentional conversation about God and his word, and then going to share the gospel together. That's what happened. Changed my whole trajectory. Andrew is not a loud personality. He's not flashy. Like, he's very intellectual. He's very about it. Like, he's not this big. He's not, you're not going to know when he walks into a room like this. But he pulled me aside, asked me specific questions about my relationship with God, and then taught me what he knew. And because of that, I realized what discipleship was. And that lunch, as simple as it was, has eternal impact. Tonight, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever done that for somebody else before? Have you ever done that? Because you don't got to be a pastor. <laughs> no. You don't got to be a preacher. You don't have to work in ministry. You don't have to be an engineer. You have to have a caring and prayerful heart. Have you ever taken somebody aside and chosen to pour into their life and to invest in them and to literally help leave behind a legacy in their life that promotes Christ and not you? That's what discipleship is. 
And I think we twist it. I think we complicate it. But truly, it is walking through God's word. It is accountability. It is pouring your life into somebody else as much as they are willing to. Robbie Gallaty says, you are not a disciple until you've made a disciple. And tonight I want to talk about what it looks like for us to impact people in a way that lasts. Now, in 1 Peter, here's one thing you have to understand. Peter is talking about how to live in light of the end time. This is, of course, after Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He's given Matthew 28 the incredible command to go, therefore, and make disciples. And now Peter is writing, and what he's doing is he is communicating how we should live in light of Jesus coming back. So it's end time ethics. In other words, what you're supposed to do if Jesus is really coming back, how you're supposed to treat people if Jesus is really coming back, and it's a fantastic exhortation from him. So look with me if you will. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. Peter's just spent a lot of time talking about suffering as Christ has suffered and to put aside the world, to, to lay aside the world, to not wear the world, to not wear sin, but to wear the fruit of the Spirit, the armor of God. And then in verse 7, he comes to this, and this is where we're going to start. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. That's the very first verse. I'll read it again. We're going to sit on this for just a moment. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Verse 8, above all, maintain constant love for one another. Does it say maintain temporary love? No. It doesn't say maintain occasional love. Peter gives a big assertion. This is big for believers to maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter gets even more specific. He says this in verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together with fellow believers, Lord, to worship you, to make much of your name. Father, we, we thank you for the chance that we have to just be here tonight, to be encouraged, to hear your word spoken. And Lord, we pray that you would have every word. God, I pray that you would speak tonight, that you would save someone, that you would convict them of their sin, God, that you would call them to be a follower of you, and that we would count the cost of that. Lord, I pray that you would move in here, God. I pray against any distractions. I pray against any discouragement. Father, I just pray that you would have your, play, have your way in this place, Lord, that you would speak very clearly. And God, we just thank you for Alan and Harmony and for us being able to worship you tonight. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of Jesus, that he died for our sins and then rose bodily from the grave for us to have hope when we repent and when we trust in him as our Savior. So, Lord, we love you. We pray that you would move tonight. If that's your prayer, would you say amen? Amen. Let me give you the first thing that I want you to take away with. Number one, prayer must be everything, not an extra thing. Yes, amen. Amen. It's all right to make some noise in church. Hallelujah. Prayer, especially about prayer. Sheesh. Prayer must be everything, not an extra thing. 
And I have some cross-references I'm going to go through. I'm going to try to go through them as slow as possible because I want you to get them. But prayer must be everything, not an extra thing. Isn't it amazing? And this is so timely, especially coming off of the resurrection weekend, Jesus rising from the dead, that literally Peter says the end is near, that Christ is coming back, right? He's talking about Christ's return, which is so often like not talked about a lot in our spheres of influence in the church. Like we talk about the resurrection as we should, praise God. It's, it's where our hope is. But man, just a reminder to you, Jesus is coming back. Hallelujah. <laughs> like our world gets dark. Our world is sinful. Sometimes it doesn't look like we have hope when everything is falling apart. Sometimes our lives don't look like they have hope when things are falling apart. Sometimes our relationships don't look like they have hope when things are falling apart. But let me just tell you, we have hope not just because Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. We have hope because Jesus is coming back. The same gospel has been changing lives for 2,000 years. Jesus is coming back. So let me just remind you, there's a second coming, and it's going to be glorious. But isn't it amazing that when Peter, who walked with Jesus, one of the top three disciples, right? You don't want to rank them, but he was in, the inner, he was in that core three that was there for the transfiguration moment, like Peter's been there with Jesus every step of the way. Peter says that in light of Jesus coming back, the best way for you and for me to prepare for it is to clear our mind. Isn't that fascinating? It's to be alert, clear our mind, and pray. Man, Cole, that's crazy, ain't it? Because you would think there's so many other different things that Peter would, would exhort us to, and he does. He talks about how we treat one another, which is very important. But man, he says, because the end is near, get your mind clear. Be alert and start praying. I love that. Now, when Peter says sober-minded here, I want you to understand the meaning of this when you really break this down, what he's saying. This is the opposite of insanity, and it's the opposite of drunkenness. So when he says sober-minded, he's saying that you're in your right mind, right? Insanity is what? We've heard the definition, doing the same thing and expecting different results. That's how we often are with sin. We run back to our sin, and we expect a different result. And then when we're hurt, when we're lost, when we're broken because of that sin, it's kind of insanity. So it's the opposite of insanity, and it's the opposite of drunkenness. That's huge. Now, when he says be alert, this is very important. When he says be alert, it's implying the idea of self-control. That we would be believers who have the spirit of God in us that gives us the power to control our bodies, our minds, our words, our actions. That we would be people who are alert and self-controlled to resist Sin. Now, what Peter's teaching very clearly here is that a prayerless believer is powerless against temptation. Hear me very clearly, Cautions. A prayerless believer is powerless against temptation. Your power in overcoming sin, and I don't know what it is for you, you do. I'm not a mind reader, but each one of us have that sin, that stronghold that holds on to us, and we wish we could break it. And we try and we try and we try and somehow willpower just doesn't do it. It's because we need the Spirit's power flowing through us. Prayer is your avenue. Scripture is your avenue to overcoming temptation. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 says it again. Listen to this. Paul says here, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. In my study on prayer, what I have found to be very true is that a prayerful believer is a prepared believer. A prayerful believer is a prepared believer. And what you're prepared for is to fight temptation. That's one of the incredible things about prayer, that it prepares you to fight temptation, to resist temptation, to resist the enemy. That clearly, understand this. 
if you are losing in the battle to temptation tonight, number one, you're not alone, but don't let that excuse you to keep running back to that sin. Sometimes when we realize that other people struggle with sin too, I talked about this at the guys' life group last week. Sometimes we just kind of, well, I'm going to just keep going back to it because so-and-so is struggling with it. No, 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 no. Just because other people struggle with it too, that should be an encouragement in your fight against it. That should not encourage you to not fight against it. So understand that very clearly. You're not alone. But in your fight against temptation, if you're losing, nine times out of ten, 9.5 times out of ten, it's because you're losing in prayer first. If you have a relationship, if you're dating somebody, and you are struggling with sexual immorality, struggling, struggling, struggling. How often do you pray together? Is it rare? Is it often? If you start praying more, you will probably see more victories. In your fight against that which you look at on your phone, so many obstacles that we find. It's not just pornography. That's a big one. In our fight against comparison and idolatry on social media, when we're comparing our real life to people's highlight reels, how often do you find yourself praying when you're alone? Hear me, if you are losing in the fight to temptation, it's probably because you're losing in the fight for prayer. There's a reason why athletes, which I wish I was one, there's a reason why athletes stretch and warm up before a game. There's a philosophy to it. There's a science to it. The reason why is because what you do before the battle, what you do before the game, impacts the game itself and the outcome. Understand this. In your fight against temptation, what you do before the temptation arises impacts the temptation itself and the outcome too. So a lot of you, when it comes to sin and temptation, you're tearing all kinds of ACLs, you're tearing all kinds of ligaments, you're breaking bones, you're falling down, you're struggling to really compete in this battle against sin, and it's because you have not prepared in the morning getting in prayer and getting in the Word. When I go out there and play basketball now, I have to stretch. I have to really stretch. And man, listen, as funny as it is, every single day that I wake up in the morning, if I'm going to have a chance at overcoming the temptations in my life, I have got to spend time with God and I have got to pray. I have got to clear my mind and I can't do it through my power. I need the Lord's help. I need his word. I need prayer. And so do you. If you want to overcome that temptation, two medicines that have never failed, God's word and prayer. You will never get to a place where you need God's word or prayer any less. No matter if you've been a believer for 10 years, 20 years, 70 years, seven minutes, you'll never need the word and you'll never need prayer any less. You need it. So none of this is even in my notes. What what is it for you tonight? That stronghold you walk in, carrying, coming off of Easter, which we see. We see everybody's pictures. I posted one too. We see everybody's pictures. We see all the scriptures. It's such an encouraging weekend. But I believe that some of you came in here tonight and you've got something weighing on you very heavy. Maybe it's a sin or a stronghold. Maybe it's a worry. Maybe it's a doubt. I don't know. But what I do know is that victory in that is found in prayer. I believe that if you walk out of here tonight and somebody asks you, what did God do tonight? What did you learn tonight? And you go tell them, I learned that I need to pray. Praise God. Amen? Because, man, prayer, let's be honest. We talk about it all the time. But talking about prayer... And practicing prayer are two different things. Do you pray? Prayer cards, prayer journals, prayer retreats, my personal favorite. I love prayer retreats. I love getting away. Are any of those a a practice for you? Can be tonight. So Peter says the best way that you can prepare for the end time, if Jesus is really coming back, 
Clear your mind and pray. Now, he's teaching this from his own experience. And if you know Peter's testimony, you'll love this cross-reference, of course, because when we look at Matthew 26, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, some of you know where I'm going. It's an incredible moment. Peter's speaking from experience, which is so cool when you look at Peter's life and then you look at his letter. And I wish we had a longer study we could do on this because when you look at his life with Jesus and you look at his letter, there's so many things that are really, really cool to study. But when he says be alert, he's speaking from experience. Let's look at this. Matthew 26, verse 36. This will be on the screen. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. He told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. This is near the end of Matthew's gospel. And Jesus is preparing to go and die for the sins of the world on the cross. He's preparing for the crucifixion. Taking along Peter, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38, he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. It's a simple request. It's a simple command. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, this is Jesus, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is willing, no matter how, no matter how horrendous it is to die for the sins of the world and be separated in his fellowship with the Father, he is willing to die on the cross if that's the Lord's will. And that's what Jesus does. Not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Verse 41, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let's read that last part, starting with the spirit. Read it with me. Here we go. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Many of you know the story. Peter continues to fall asleep. He doesn't stay alert. He doesn't stay awake. He doesn't pray. He proclaimed loyalty to Jesus to the point of saying, hey, we will go die for you, Jesus. But when it came time for Peter to stay awake and pray, Peter fell short. And Peter understands what it's like to fall into temptation. Peter understands what it's like to disobey the Lord. Because as Jesus was preparing to go be crucified, as Jesus was preparing for the cross, he didn't ask Peter to go fight. He didn't ask Peter to draw his sword. He asked Peter to stay awake and pray. And Peter couldn't do it. Are you awake? Not right now, of course. I know you are, hopefully. Are you awake, though, to the seriousness of prayer? If I could turn your mind to anything as finals are coming up, it's, it's, it's been a tough school year, has it not? It's been a tough semester. Life is a grind right now. That's why I love the message last week about storms, because life is a grind for a lot of people. Are you alert and awake to the seriousness of prayer? Earlier, me and my team and some guys, we walked through the parking lot just praying. I don't know what the Lord will do with it, but man, it felt so good to just go outside and just walk up and down and pray with John Knight. And I want to do that more in my life. Has God waken you up to the seriousness of temptation in your life yet? I hope that you're awake. Peter says, Jesus is returning. Jesus is alive. And after this Easter weekend, let me tell you, if you believe in the resurrection, then it's time to live like he's returning to. If you believe in the resurrection, it's time to live like Jesus is returning to. Romans 13, verses 11 to 12 says this. Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you, Paul says, to wake up from sleep. Because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Not only that, but I love James 5, verses 8 to 9. He says this, James says, you also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. You have Peter, you have James, you have Paul who are all saying the Lord's coming is near. Yet most of us don't realize it. We got to stop settling for prayer being a burden. We got to stop settling for prayer being an add-on, being the extra thing that Christians do before a meal, which sometimes we forget even then. (laughs) We have to allow prayer to become a lifestyle, not something that we're forced to do. I'm telling you, your life will change. I love this. I heard a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says this, true prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It is far deeper than that. It is spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. That's Charles Spurgeon. But not only that, you talk about the time that we spend gossiping and talking about other people's lives. I heard this quote as well. I'll let you get a picture of it. Here's the one right here. I'll go ahead and read it. If we would turn the time we spend discussing other people's lives into prayer time instead, there is no telling what would happen to the glory of God. Man, we know how to talk because we spend so much time talking about other people. I know we know how to talk as human beings. (laughs) The problem is we're not using our voice with God. Once we start, though, once you start communicating with your creator, once prayer becomes everything and not an extra thing, I'm telling you, your life will change. You want joy? It's on the other side of prayer. You want peace? It's on the other side of God's scripture. You want assurance in who you are and your identity and where your value comes from. It's found in prayer. The question is, will you believe that exhortation tonight? Because when you walk out those doors, you're going into a world where nobody is praying. Even believers, your friend group may not be praying. And you got to be the one to kickstart that. And that's hard. When people around you aren't praying and you're trying to make it a priority yourself, man, that's hard, is it not? I've been there. I've had friend groups where we never prayed. We never talked about the things of the Lord. And it was hard. And a lot of times I fell into the same trap. And I don't want you to miss that tonight. Peter found restoration. There's a moment in Peter's life that's very chilling when he denies Jesus three times. Of course, Jesus predicted it, that Peter would deny him. But it's this moment that's very chilling. Jesus is on trial, and he tells Peter, hey, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, of course, hey, we'll die for you. Like, I'm loyal. I'm going to stay with you to the end. But the moment when Peter denies Jesus is very chilling. I'll show you this in Luke 22, verses 31. This will be on the screen. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, here it is, look what Peter says, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. (laughs) That's a bold claim. You ever made a bold claim that you weren't sure you could back up? I made a bold claim. I told Dakota I was going to start working out with him. I went once. Have not been back. It's too much. It's not for me. I went home, watched a movie with my wife. Amen. Like working out stuff, weight lifting. Can't have all those calluses on my hands. Man, I got to hold my wife's hand. Butt power to you. Shoulders look great. Amen. He makes a bold claim. It's hard to live out. We know about making bold claims. Listen, I'm not alone. Y'all laugh, but I'm not the only one who said I'm starting my diet today. Summertime's coming. Listen, it's breathing down my neck. I already know we're halfway through April already. Beach Week's going to be here before I know it. I'm going to be just as mad I didn't start my diet in March. We make big claims, big claims. Peter makes a big claim. Hey, I will go to prison for you. (laughs) I'll die for you. 
Here's what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, this is verse 34. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. Now, this is Peter, hero of the faith, right? One of the central rocks of the church, denying Jesus. Wrap your mind around that for a moment. Here's where it happens. I'm going to show you, one, in my opinion, one of the most chilling, spine-chilling moments in Scripture. One of the most spine-chilling moments. It's right here. Look at this. What's great is what follows this is a restoration. Luke 22, verse 54. They seized him, led him away, and brought Jesus into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. Don't you love that? I, I, I picture Peter like in the bushes and stuff. <laughs> Like around a fence corner, you know, looking. Probably not what happened, but. Verse 55, they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, this man was with him too. Ooh. It's time to go to prison, Peter. It's time to die, Peter. Right? This is what he said. Here's the first one. Verse 57, but Peter denied it. Woman I don't know him. That's not the spine-chilling moment yet. It's coming. I'm telling you, I've never forgotten this moment in Scripture. Verse 58, after a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not. I don't know. That's probably not how it was, but man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting. This man was certainly with him. Verse 60, but Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, we're gonna keep this up for a minute, a rooster crowed. Now, before we go to the next verse, this has got to be one of the most chilling moments in scripture. Remember, before we read this, and it's something simple, it's not crazy. Jesus restores Peter. Peter goes on to preach the gospel. Thousands get saved. I mean, Peter lives for the Lord all through Acts. It's incredible, rejoices in prison. But this moment right here after denying Jesus three times, imagine this. This is what it says. Verse 61. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Hear me for a moment. We'll keep this up. It doesn't even say Jesus. It says, then the Lord. Can you imagine? Place yourself in his sandals. Can you imagine denying Jesus three times and then when the rooster crows, Jesus, I picture it just like this, turning his head to look at Peter, to make eye contact. Can you imagine how chilling that moment is to have walked with Jesus for three years, to have claimed, hey, I will die for you. I will go to prison for you. Jesus says, you're gonna deny me three times. Peter's like, no shot. And then when it happens, when he's ashamed and when he's embarrassed and when he doesn't want to be associated with this man, Jesus, the rooster crows and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The reason I make so much out of this moment is because this is rock bottom. There is no more falling lower than Peter could fall in this moment to deny his Lord and Savior who he has walked with three times publicly and then make eye contact while Jesus is on trial as low as it can be. And yet Jesus still restores him. Let me make a great point to you. I don't know how low you've fallen. 
I don't know if you've denied God. I don't know where you have gone. I don't know what you have done. I don't know what sin you've committed. But let me tell you something. If God can restore somebody like Peter after a moment like this, is there anything he cannot restore you or your family from? Is there anything he cannot restore your friends from? Is there any sin that cannot be forgiven in the Lord's eyes if you will repent? Because Peter's at rock bottom, and yet still Jesus raises him up and uses him as the rock of the church. Friends, how could God use you if you would turn to him for restoration? He would use you in ways you could never imagine. He would send you out in that world to be a disciple maker, to be somebody that lives for the Lord and teaches others about the Lord and shares scripture and teaches others how to pray. All of a sudden, you don't just have a prayer life, but you're teaching others how to pray. That's how God could use you. So I don't know what sin you're in. I don't know how far you've fallen. But I do know the one who picks us up when we do fall. That's Jesus. Would you repent? Would you turn to the Lord? I don't know who I'm talking to. The Lord does. Would you stop choosing I'm speaking to myself too. Stop choosing to live in arrogance and pride and selfishness and immorality and drunkenness and whatever it is for you. Would you just say, Lord, I'm done. I don't want this no more. It's not bringing me satisfaction. It's bringing me misery. It's not giving me my identity. It's taking away from who I am. There's no hope in this, Lord. So I'm turning to you. I'm done chasing after the world. I want you, Lord. I repent. I turn from this. You know how you know if repentance is real? There's a turn. God bless you. First Thessalonians, Paul says, I remember how you turned from the idols you were serving in order to serve the living God. What repentance is tonight, it's you turning from those false idols in order to serve the living God. If he can do it with Peter, he can do it with you. If he can do it with Peter, I promise you he can do it with you too. Peter's experienced temptation. And that's why he's speaking so clearly on having a a clear mind because he knows what it's like to have a divided mind. Oh, he knows what it's like to make false claims, to say, all right, I'm living for Jesus on this half of my brain, but then I'm still living for myself and the world on this side of my brain. It's like that divider right there. This room's a lot bigger than what you see, but we pull that divider right there and it breaks this room into two so that something can happen over here and something can happen over there at the exact same time. That's how a lot of us are living with our minds as a divider. There's God's word happening over on this side, but there's a whole lot of sin happening on this side. And what Peter says, hey, prayer clears your mind. Prayer takes the truth of scripture from one side of your brain and it invades where the lies are on the other side. And now you have a mind that is not divided, watch this, but devoted to the Lord. Do you want to live that way, Colossians? comes through prayer. I know you're like, Daniel, I'm so sick of hearing about prayer. Prayer. Undivide your mind so that you can be fully devoted to it. I love this, this quote. This will be on the screen. I pray that we will have a mind that's not dependent on people for peace, but a mind that's dependent on the prince of peace. A mind that doesn't need anything from anybody else in order to experience supernatural peace, but a mind that only needs to know Jesus. One of my favorite quotes is from Jenny Allen. I was reading over this last night as I put the final touches on my sermon. And this quote, my my wife has read her book. It says this, one God-honoring thought. And yeah, here it is right here. One God-honoring thought has the potential to change the trajectory of both history and eternity. 
just as one uninterrupted lie in my head has the potential to bring about unimaginable destruction in the world around me. Have you ever had one thought just disrupt your whole world? You ever had one thought just destroy everything you got going for that day? I've been there so many times. You know why that happens? You're like, Daniel, I hate you. It's when we have that lie and we don't deal with it in any kind of prayer. Like we believe that prayer is cool, that it's beneficial, that it's a command, but until we start believing that prayer is the source, prayer is the answer, those lies are going to continue to wreak havoc all over our life. But there's a different way. The last thing I'll say about prayer, to turn off of our mind, to look at others. If you love someone, you'll pray for them. If I love someone, I will pray for them. Praying for someone without them having to know is one of the deepest forms of love. We often do the opposite. We sometimes, if we're honest, tell a whole lot of people we're praying for them, but we don't really get around to it. One of the most sacrificial things that you can do for someone is to commit to pray for them and then not need any credit for it. Not need a thank you. If you need a thank you, if I need a thank you for praying for somebody, what are we really praying for them for? If you love someone, you'll pray for them. When I was lost in high school, putting my identity in everything, I had some people praying for me and I didn't even realize it. In fact, one of them was Ethan Watkins' dad. Ethan shared last week on stage, Mr. Eric. Mr. Eric didn't even really know who I was, but he knew my mom. And when I was lost, my mom continually prayed for me that I would come to something like this, that I would live for the Lord. And Mr. Eric would get together with my mom when I was lost and they would pray together for me seven years when I was lost. And I didn't realize it until, of course, after I got saved. And so when my mom and Mr. Eric see what God has done with my life as a pastor now, it's pretty wild. But I want to tell you, I had people praying for me, and I'm glad I did because they were praying for me at a time when I wasn't praying for myself. And there's a few applications to that that I'll give you. Some of you aren't living for the Lord in a lot of areas, and you know you've got loved ones praying for you. Some of you have loved ones that aren't living for the Lord, and you need to be praying for them. Even more than that, though, some of you have incredibly godly people that the Lord has put in your life. And you rarely ever, I rarely ever, take the time to thank the Lord for those people. If their blessings isn't God worth thanking him for, I'm telling you, one thing I'm doing in my journaling, and then I'm moving off to prayer, each day I'm writing three things that I'm grateful for in my prayer journal because I want my prayer to go to the next level. I'm tired of superficial prayer. I want supernatural prayer. I'm praying for a ministry where we have supernatural prayer. I write three things I'm grateful for every day. And one thing I do, I pray my last thing on prayer, I think about anything I'm taking for granted that morning. Sometimes it's writing a sermon. Sometimes the last thing I want to do is study and write a sermon. Sometimes it's having to do errands. Sometimes it's anything. Anything I'm taking for granted, I go in my prayer journal and I take it from something I'm taking for granted into something I'm grateful for. Man, can I tell you the power that's in that? You want to see a breakthrough in your prayer life? Start writing what you're taking for granted and turn it into a grateful prayer. And I'm telling you, God will do wonders inside of your heart and your mind. He will do wonders.
But not only that, not only does prayer have to be everything, but number two, love must be constant, not just when it's convenient. Prayer must be everything, not just an extra thing. And then number two, love must be constant, not just when it's convenient. If we can be real honest for a moment here at The View, sometimes loving people is not easy. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Sometimes loving people is hard. And I love that because sometimes you and me are hard to love too. Why is that? It's a big thing for Peter to say, maintain constant love. But man, sometimes it's hard to love people. I'll tell you why it's hard to love me sometimes. Actually, let me have my wife tell you because she could give you a very clear description. I'm hard-headed. I run back to sugar cookies every semester. It's wrecking my life. (laughs) Not really. I think I know all the answers. It's hard to love people because we're sinful and we're all different. We're sinful and we're all different. So to maintain constant love is a challenge. But I want to tell you, it's a calling. 1 Peter chapter 4 says this in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God. That's stout. That's strong. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son in the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God has loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Here's what it looks like to have a love that is constant. I'm going to give you three things very quickly in your notes. Above all, maintain a constant love that is this. A, a love that's forgiving, a love that's patient. If you want to know what it really looks like to love people with the love of Christ, it's hard, I'll tell you that. But it's a love that is forgiving and it's a love that is patient. A love that doesn't hold grudges. A love that shows mercy. A love that shows grace. Anytime I struggle to show grace to somebody in my life, what I try to think about is Romans 5, 8. I try to think that God sent Jesus to die for me even when I was still a sinner. I think about how much mercy and grace God has shown me. But not only that, be a love that's hospitable, a love that's welcoming. Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaining, welcoming. That one thing we pray for in our lives and here at The View is that when you come in these doors, you are welcome with the love of Christ. That hospitality is not about the host. It's not about entertaining. It's about the guest. It's about a need. It's about meeting that need. I love this hospital. Romans 15, verses 5 to 7. I think this will be on the screen. It says, now may the God who gives endurance, here it is right here, and encouragement, grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. Not only that, but Peter says this, see, a love that doesn't complain, a love that isn't selfish. Ooh, have you ever been around somebody that always complains? It's tough. Sometimes we are that person. 
not only does he give the exhortation to love at all times, he gives the exhortation to not complain about it. That's stout. It's one thing to love somebody that's hard to love, but it's a whole other thing to love somebody that's hard to love without complaining about it. But it's because of our Savior. It's because Jesus Christ knew your sins, paid the penalty for your sins, and never complained about dying on the cross for you. Do you realize the love? That he would know everything you've ever done, every word you've ever said, every thought you've ever had, and yet still went to the cross. Like Philippians 2.14 says, Philippians 2.14 says this, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Jesus went to the cross without grumbling, without arguing, without complaining. He died for your sins. He died for my sins without grumbling or complaining. That's the love he has shown for us. Can you imagine loving others with that same kind of love? Changes people's lives, Rico. My last few years of coaching, I had a best friend when I was in college, and I have a picture of him that I believe will come up on the, scre- on the screen. His name is Coach Trey. I've told a few stories about me and Coach Trey. Here we are. Y'all remember when roaches were popping? <laughs> Thank you, Deco. <laughs> the Nike roaches. feel like you were wearing socks. I don't know if you can tell from the picture, but I had a faux hawk. <laughs> That's what people called it. A little unicorn spike in the front. Coach Trey had some slides and socks on. Well, this was in between tournaments. We was going all weekend, 12-hour shifts, different schools going around. Me and Coach Trey coached together. He was about three years older than me. Went to Arlington High School, so that sucked. But went to Arlington, and, uh, of course, I went to Bartlett. That's right. Amen. 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 Still some high school pride in here. All right. We, uh, we coached together. And, man, I'll be honest with you. At first, I hated this dude. Like you talk about loving somebody that was hard to love. This dude was hard to love. This dude was competitive. It's hard to tell in the picture, but this dude was as big as Decoat was. He was strong. He played college ball at UT Martin. Man could hoop. Man could play football. This dude was the real deal. I mean, he, he was all about it. And he was competitive. He would beat me down. He would try his hardest to. Since I was about three years younger, he would really, man, he would put it on me. We were in so many opportunities to compete against each other. It was a hard environment. It was challenging. He was, the head, he was the head freshman coach. I was the head JV, JV coach. So we had opportunities where we would scrimmage, and, man, we would fight tooth and nail. We would go back and forth with each other. And, man, I was like, this dude is too competitive for me, but I'm not finna back down. Many of y'all remember the story I told a while back now, a couple years ago. It got to the point where we would have 5 a.m. workouts, and we were trying to race to beat each other to the gym. This is that dude. We would get there at 430 and then he beat me, so I'd get there at 4.15, and I beat him, and then he got there at 4 a.m., and he beat me, and we got to the point where we was getting to the gym at 3.30. Just to be the first one in the gym, as coaches. Better see that at Brighton. As coaches. It's crazy. We got unhealthy. And then one day, we were walking. I had two big bags on my shoulders, ginormous bags. What they were filled of, it was nasty. They had 60 practice jerseys that had just been used for four hours in both bags. It was nasty. I don't know if you've ever smelled what ninth through 12th graders are like in a locker room. But, man, it's not good. It is nothing good at all. And I had these two full bags, and I had to wash them. And, man, this was a process. Like, you'd have to wash the jerseys. You'd dry them. You'd lay them out. And you had to match the number on the jersey with the number on the shorts. I mean, this was a process. This took time. And we had 60 kids in the program. So I was walking with these two bags. And Coach Trey, he looks at me. He says, where you going? I said, oh, I got to go wash these jerseys. This man looked at me. He walked over to me. I'll never forget this because it's a small moment. He walks over to me. 
grabs one of the bags off my shoulder, puts it on his, starts walking with me instead of leaving. I said, man, you want both bags? (laughs) We spent time together washing jerseys for hours, and our relationship really changed very quickly. He started investing in me. He started teaching me. He started asking me questions about my life. Every time we went out to eat, he would pay for my food. Because I'll be honest, y'all know how it is. I didn't have any money. (laughs) I was a volunteer coach in college trying to make it. I didn't have no cash. So in order to go out to eat, he would cover for me every single time. Every single time. He'd buy me books. He'd teach me stuff. He was learning X's and O's about the game, different plays, different motion sets, different, different defenses, different things he was learning, different drills. He would teach those to me. Started pouring into my life. In fact, the day I was announced as MA, this was before I'd ever preached a sermon at Bellevue, before anybody had ever heard me preach or anything like that, the day I got announced as MA at The View, you know who was there that day to see it. It was Coach Trey. He did all this for me in my life. And what I love, the reason why I tell you this is because his response when I asked him. One day, after it was all said and done, when I was done coaching and I was getting ready to be a pastor, I realized the impact Coach Trey had made on me had changed my life when I was in college. We're going on a walk tomorrow at Shelby Farms together. I looked at him. I said, Coach Trey, you always pay for my food. You teach me what you're learning. You ask me questions about my life. You come out and you see me get introduced as MA. I asked him, why do you pay for my food? Why do you do these things? Why do you take the time to do this? He looks at me. This was his answer. It's nothing crazy. He looks at me dead in the face without hesitating. He says this, because somebody else did it for me when I was where you are. I stood there. I realized this really didn't have anything to do with me. It really didn't have anything to do with him. This was the heartbeat of what discipleship is supposed to be. I have one more picture of me and Coach Trey at my, one of my sermons at the old building that I think will come up. There it is right there. Comes to hear me preach. The heartbeat of discipleship is that if your life has been changed by Jesus Christ, how can you not go do that for somebody else? For me, the reason I feel the burden to go and make disciples is because somebody stepped into my life and did it for me, and he had no idea I'd tell a story. He doesn't get any credit or glory for it. It all goes to the Lord. I have a blessing. I have the burden to go and make disciples. Has anybody done something like this for you in your life? If nobody on this earth has done it, but you know Jesus Christ, then Jesus has. He found a way. You have the great blessing to go and make disciples and do it for somebody else. And so I want to ask you, as we love people at all times, who can you love in your life by using your time, your encouragement, your energy, maybe your money? If you have that, if you can pay for somebody's food, you have no idea who it will impact if you take them out to lunch and buy their food and just ask them questions. Their life could change. That's the great call. That's the great blessing we have. But even more importantly than that, if you have not experienced that from Jesus Christ, you are missing out on the most important relationship you will ever have.